guns and money. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 63 of Conduct Detrimental. Um, your host, Daniel Wallach, along with, as usual, my co-host, Dan Lust. And we made the absolutely brilliant decision to record <laughs> our episode during the vice presidential debate. And I had some misgivings about that originally, but I think as we began to talk to our guest, I think we caught lightning in a bottle and it may have been the smartest decision that we, we made about recording an episode. So anyway, Dan, welcome. Welcome as, as always. Glad to join you again this week. Dan, the pleasure is mine to those law students, those brave law students who fended off the bar exam. Congrats. And uh, I know there were a couple more law students taking the bar this week. So I know uh, we got a lot of feedback from our last bar apocalypse episode, the bar exam episode. And, you know, if you're 1L, 2L, listen, this is the weirdest bar exam in the, in the history of mankind. So it only gets easier. So just quick to give you understanding of where we plan to go with this episode. Really this week, we had a kind of a treat. The Supreme Court of the United States doesn't normally touch upon baseball, but they decided to give us a treat this week and, and drop into our hands that they were rejecting Major League Baseball's petition to reject class action certification in a lawsuit filed by Garrett Brocious back in 2014 that had gone up to all the way to the Supreme Court on this class certification issue. So all of a sudden, it's full speed ahead for this, you know, now an old case 2014. And Dan, wouldn't you know, Garrett Brocious, former San Francisco Giant minor leaguer, is a listener of Conduct Detrimental. So uh, when I saw that Garrett uh, was the attorney in the case, I know I'd been following it. I didn't, I wasn't familiar with the, with who the lead attorney was. I uh, looked up Garrett's Twitter handle he was following us, and uh, very quickly, uh, we got him on the show. Dan, Dan, did you realize that people listen to this podcast, that it's not just me and you? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't look at the numbers, but uh, over the years, I've been surprised by the number of people who tell me that they follow me on Twitter, even though they're not on Twitter. Well, or, Dan, Dan oh, do you know that there's a number that says how many people are following you? I'm not sure if you were aware of that. <laughs> but we have some shadow followers, each of us on, on Twitter. And it was really nice of, of Garrett to say that. By the way, Garrett Brocious is like the perfect baseball name, right? You know, uh, Scott Brocious, you know, third really? baseman for the... For the 1998 New York Yankees, and then his first name, Garrett Wayne Garrett, the third baseman for the you know Miracle Mets of 1969 and the almost Miracle Mets of 1973. So it's a great baseball name, and unsurprisingly, Garrett was a former baseball player himself, fifth round draft choice of the San Francisco Giants. Okay. And you know we joke we joke around a little bit, but today's topic is one that I I take very seriously because with the wealth that exists throughout baseball. I mean, Steve Cohen is about to be approved as the new owner of the New York Mets. He's worth $14 billion. Next up on the list of, of net worth, Ted Lerner, $4 billion with a, with a B. And I saw that you're taking your pinky to your mouth and, and, and trying to like, you know, conjure up Austin Powers. But we're talking billions. Charles Johnson, the Giants owner, is worth $4.5 Marion Illich. 3.8 billion. Yet the up-and-coming employees or, or or minor leaguers who are going to you know be on your baseball teams and be players that you root for if and when they make it to the major leagues, they're being paid a a substandard wage, well below the poverty line. You know the average major leaguer or the average minor leaguer might be lucky 
enough to make a couple of thousand dollars per year. They're not paid at all for spring training or the instructional league. And Garrett has taken on the cause of fighting Major League Baseball on behalf of a class of minor league players to try to get a fair wage or at least a minimum wage under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So this is a case that I've been tracking for many, many years. And a major, a major event occurred this week where the Supreme Court denied certiorari on the on, on Major League Baseball's attempt to overturn or, or reverse a Ninth Circuit decision on the issue of class certification. So we, we may, you know, so the end is in sight. And I think Garrett may be on the way towards overhauling and reforming, you know, the, the system by which minor league players are compensated. You know, we'll, we'll get right into it, but I think it's important to understand the historical context. You know, we're in 2020, 50 years ago, almost, you know, right around there. Kurt Flood basically invented uh, what we now know as modern free agency. And Garrett's going to get into the finances a little bit. But like, I remember hearing some stat that like George Brett was the highest paid player in baseball in like the 80s with like $100,000. Like that was the 80s. It wasn't so long ago. George Brett was one of the top players in baseball. And now $100,000 isn't even, you know, minimum, the, the minimum major league salary. So the pro salaries have skyrocketed, but what has not skyrocketed are the minor league salaries, which you know we'll get into with Garrett, are not protected by the union, and baseball is really not got what the times in the minor league sense. So, you know, I think it's really interesting. Garrett is not just an attorney like Dan and I, but Garrett is a minor league player who rode the buses, right? Garrett had a mixed bag of success. He wasn't some golden boy bonus baby, you know, who was a, a top draft pick and got ten million dollars to sit in the bank. Garrett is, you know, as much as he's an attorney, he's. I mean, I, Garrett's probably Garrett's probably a, have a conflict of interest for him to be a plaintiff in the case, but. I mean, he understands these issues better than maybe anybody else out there. So, Dan, anything else you want to add before we jump into our Garrett interview? Yeah, I mean, you know, the system is pretty much stacked against players from the moment they turn professional. I mean, you mentioned that that major league players have had significant advances in salaries, but for the first couple of years of their of their trajectory and they're playing in the minor leagues, they're making well below the minimum wage. And then when they get to the major leagues, their salaries are controlled for a specific number of years before they can even get arbitration rights or turn free agency uh, or turn free agent. So a player like Aaron Judge may have to almost go 10 plus years before he can actually market his wares to the highest bidder. It is a system that has been historically stacked against the player. And even with advances in major league salaries, I think when you look at the minor league aspect of it and the early part of these players' careers, especially considering that they have a very short time in which to apply their trade, this is a system that rewards the billionaires and the players that are essentially powerless and consigned to to, to artificially depressed wagers for so many years of their viable careers. With that being said, let us jump straight into our interview with Garrett Brocious. Garrett, welcome to Conduct Detrimental. It's a pleasure having you here. How's everything going? Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, as Dan and I have mentioned, it was a huge get for the podcast to get you on. Uh, I know that we've been following the case for a number of years. So when you were the one, I believe the one that broke the the news that the Supreme Court had ruled on your case, that they were allowing it to proceed at the trial court level, we thought of you right away. So I guess, uh, you know, we, we're familiar with your background. Just briefly, and then I'm going to kind of ask you to fill in some gaps. I know that you played at the University of Missouri with Max Scherzer, Ian Kinsler, fifth round draft picked of my San Francisco Giants. I don't know if you knew that I was a fan. My dad grew up as a Willie Mays New York Giants fan. So I'm like, 
the only New York San Francisco Giants fan. But yeah, I know you you played, you know, you were up here by my neck of the woods in Connecticut for the Connecticut Defenders. But yeah, you're more more recently known as a graduate of St. Louis Law School. And now uh, you represent the lead minor leaguer in this lawsuit. That's uh, a, I'll let you paint it for everybody, but it's a lawsuit to try to change the compensation for minor leaguers. So if you could give, give our listeners a brief background about yourself and really what this litigation is, and then we can kind of parse that, parse that out. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that intro. And and like I said, it's a pleasure to be, be on here and give you a, a, just a two minute background. You know, so I, I did, I started at the University of Missouri. I was lucky enough to play with some great players there. You mentioned Ian Kinsler, mentioned Scherzer. You forgot though, Jace Tingler. Jace Tingler was there and he's currently, well, he might be well, I guess he's not managing as we speak, but yeah, he's he's having a good little uh, postseason in his first year uh, as a manager for the Padres. So yeah, I was lucky to play with some some great players there and some great leaders there. And for the most part, my career was pretty mediocre, to, just to be nice about it. But then my last year, I just put together this really, really good season where all of a sudden I was 11-0 and both an academic All-American and an All-American. And just, I don't know, sometimes things just come together like that. And I was drafted by the San Francisco Giants in the fifth round and began my pro career at that point. And, you know, right away, things just felt a little off. In a lot of ways, it seemed like a step down from good college baseball. Not necessarily in the on-field play, but just the, the way players were treated. You know, when I was at the University of Missouri, you know, I, I didn't have a lavish apartment by any means. I just had a normal college apartment and you know, I had two roommates. We each had our own bedroom and we actually had beds. And, and all of a sudden I'm in Pro Bowl and I'm sleeping on a futon in somebody's basement. And I'm getting you know 20 bucks a day for meal money Whereas when I was at the University of Missouri, I was getting 35 bucks a day for meal money. I'm like, really? Wait, I'm, you know, I'm playing for the San Francisco Giants, their system now, and supposed to be getting a paycheck now, but I'm treated worse than when I was in college. And so, you know, it's one of those things that initially you, you don't really say anything about it. You just grit your teeth and keep working and, and just ignore it because you're a bit starry-eyed. But, you know, as things got, went on, guys started talking about it a little more. You know, there were a lot of rumblings about how, you know, well, for instance, there was one time I asked the bat boy how much he was making in a given game. And this is when I was in double A, my first year in double A. And he told me he was making 55 bucks that day uh, for like four hours of work. That was more than I was making that day. It's crazy. So that's when it really sunk in that the bat boy was making more money than me. And something was just wrong about that. So yeah, my last year playing, when it became apparent that you know I was definitely just a roster filler and was not making it to the major leagues, started studying for law school and you know picked up a study guide for the LSAT at Borders, rest in peace, and started studying on the bus rides while I was still in the minor leagues for the LSAT and took it four days uh, after my final game, which was not the best way to take the LSAT at all. I do not recommend that. To any listeners out there, but it worked out. And, you know, I did well in law school and got on at a great firm, Coron Tillery here in St. Louis. And, you know, for the past six years now, which is incredible to think about, six years we have been doing this case. Garrett, given your background in baseball, it obviously made sense. And it, it was a natural fit for you as a trial lawyer to take on a case of this magnitude. Well, how did this case come together? What was the sort of the anatomy of this case walking into your door? Yeah. So in many ways, you know, I think this case was ripe to be brought because 
Now, this is something that the players will talk about, you know, at various points, whether you're riding on the bus late at night or sometimes even uh, while you're standing around the outfield during batting practice, you'll talk about, you know what, I probably work 60, 70 hours a week. And when you do the math, I'm probably making four bucks an hour. You know, I'm being paid below minimum wage. And so, you know, guys are thinking about this. And so, you know, eventually some guys wanted to, to challenge it. The name plaintiff, who is the, the first name plaintiff on the case, Aaron Sinek, He's a fellow University of Missouri guy. And, you know, after we initially brought it, which was all the way back early 2014, many other players joined on. And we quickly grew the case to to where we had named plaintiffs for every major league team. But there have been other cases brought in the past. Maybe they were in the overtime context. How does the Senny case differ from the reported decisions you know, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, when baseball has been involved in similar litigation in the past, what what was different about your case, you know, as contrasted with some of the ones filed in other circuits? When you look at the history of the Fair Labor Standards Act and, and its application to baseball, there's only been a couple of cases. And one actually, I mentioned Bat Boy earlier, one actually involved a Bat Boy. And an, an, another one, it's been a while, just a bit since I've looked at it. But it didn't involve players either. And so, you know, this was really the first case to ever challenge it on behalf of players. And what's a bit different is, you know, players are playing throughout the year. And they're very often nowadays, you know, using spring training sites uh, throughout the year. Almost any given time that you go down to a spring training site, you will find players at that spring training site now. So, you know, the days of this being a seasonal business are, are really gone. This is not... You know, Stan Musial's baseball of the, the 1950s. Mm-hmm. The, the game has changed immensely. This is a year-round endeavor at this point. We think we're on really good footing with the Fair Labor Standards Act, or at least we were on really good footing until, I'm sure we'll talk about this at some point, until the Congress passed the Save America's Pastime Act. But the good thing is, is we're not just using the federal law. We're also using some state laws, too. And many of those state laws don't recognize all the exemptions that the federal law has. And so, you know, we're, we're really looking forward to litigating the rest of the case and pushing this along and, and hopefully bringing forth some real meaningful relief for these players. I, I wanted to jump in quick and, and I do want to get to the Save, uh, you know, the Save the Pastime Act. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting and we can probably get into the, the whole heart of it. Maybe not a coincidence that Major League Baseball has announced significant retraction in minor league teams, right? There's going to be a shortage of, of minor league jobs. So in addition to that, there's a, I'm just a, a quote, the, the athletic, it's a major league baseball has long planned to increase minor league player salaries and announced earlier this year that minor league players would be receiving salary increases. I saw that quote come out, you know, this week after uh, you broke the news that the Supreme Court was allowing this case to proceed at the trial court level. My take on this is that actions speak louder than words. You can make promises that the minor leaguers would be receiving salary increases. Your Major League Baseball, you've paid the lobbyists to have the Save America's Pastime Act. You've paid exorbitant legal fees to appeal this for the last number of years. What are your thoughts on on baseball's intentions? Do you do you actually believe that Major League Baseball had actually long planned to increase minor league player salaries? And do they do they have that intention today? Yeah, I think the word long plan is, is probably a little deceptive. Major League Baseball has fought this very hard. You know, this is six years of litigation at this point. And instead of doing the right thing and raising salaries years ago, they have been you know, paying their, their attorneys, their high-priced attorneys, and have been paying lobbyists. You know, the time has come to fix this problem. 
And sure, they say they're raising salaries by 38% or something next year. And I hope they do. And 38% is nothing to, to, to sneeze at. And it's going to provide relief to a lot of players. But still with that increase, a huge number of players are going to receive salaries that put them below the poverty line. I mean, we're talking some players are still going to be below $10,000 for the entire year. And it shows just how low salaries were to begin with. So we went back, the nonprofit that I helped co-found, Advocates for Minor Leaguers, went back and looked at some of the salary history of minor league players. And salaries since the 1970s have increased about 75% for minor league players. Inflation over that time period is over 400%. And major league salaries have increased over 5,000%. And the reason I picked that, the reason we picked that number in the 1970s is that's when, that's when free agency came about for right. major league players. That made such a huge, huge difference. And, you know, it shows, you know, what collective bargaining can do for a group of, of workers because they were able to get collective bargaining well, through the arbitration process, but as a result of collective bargaining and minor leaguers just don't have that at all. I did want to touch on that. So it's, you know, almost, it's basically 50 years. I think it was 1970 with the Kurt Flood versus Kuhn decision. So 50 years later, I mean, I was, you know, kind of saying it in jest. I mean, it, the only thing that's really surprising to me, at least the Supreme Court decision now 20 years later that they're going to let you proceed is that nothing has really changed in the minor leagues, at least on a, on a power level, right? It's, it's still not unionized. I know um, we can get into this. Different sports like hockey have a little bit more. Uh, there's a hockey union, right? They have some some power. So do you think that that Major League Baseball as a whole is on track to increasing the power of minor leaguers? Is there anything in particular that you hope that the union would put in the CBA that would help minor league players? Yeah, I hope so. The Major League Baseball Players Association, its hands are a bit tied. When you look at their collective bargaining agreements, it spells out what their bargaining unit is. And it spells out that they represent the players on the 40-man roster. And so, you know, how much can they do on behalf of minor league players then? Uh, it's, it's somewhat limited. At the same time, I think there is more that they can do. And also, I think they can go, go further to help support players in other ways and be more vocal about the need for the minor league players to have representation also. Because that's really what is needed to fix the problem. The, the lawsuit that, that's been filed on behalf of players it's going to provide some real meaningful leaf. But in the long run, the best situation is for the players to actually have representation because then both sides come to the table. They have to hammer out a deal that works for the industry, that works for, for both sides. And not everybody gets everything in collective bargaining, but it helps equalize the, the, the playing field. Because you mentioned the, you know, the Kirk Flood decision. You know, one of the things about that is since that enshrined the antitrust exemption, it has actually had a very big influence on minor league salaries because it means that unlike any other industry, the major league teams can collude on salaries and suppress them at an artificial level. So, you know, me as an attorney, when I was graduated from when I graduated from law school, imagine if all the top law firms out there got together and said, you know what, we're only going to pay new hires twenty five thousand dollars per year. Like that would be ridiculous. And there was no, there's no way that that would survive antitrust scrutiny because it's, a, it's an anti-competitive agreement. But yeah, the, the point being, though, this is what the major league teams do, though. You know, they've, they've suppressed minor league salaries way below the market value. It's the exact opposite of a free market. You know, if this is a free market, the minor league players would be paid 
much more. They'd be paid their true value then. But this isn't a free market. The teams collude on salaries and they've artificially suppressed them. How do you go about evening out that discrepancy in bargaining power? Well, representation through collective bargaining is probably the only way you can really do it. Garrett, now that you've scored, or I guess uh, survived the, I guess, Supreme Court petition, and this case is now back on track for litigation, can you take us through some of the next steps? Have has there been any discovery or merits discovery on this issue or only class certification discovery, or was it a blend of the two? We've completed much of discovery already. There have been over 100 depositions that have taken place. And so, you know, that was that was a long year or so of my life t- taking and defending mm-hmm. a lot of depositions. And so we've completed a lot of, a lot of the discovery. We'll, we will have to conduct a little more discovery. We need to wrap that up. And but then a big thing is, you know, we will have a status conference soon and we'll we'll plan out the rest of the case, uh, the schedule for completing the rest of discovery. We'll have expert discovery. We'll have summary judgment briefing. And, yeah, we'll get down the path of marching towards a trial then. And, and hopefully is, is there a tr- sooner than later. Is there a scheduling order that has been Not reset? Yet. Yeah, that's that's something that will hopefully take take place soon. Um, you know, with the case on appeal for so long, it was stayed. You know, we will have to have a status conference and and get that all all scheduled up. Can you explain what the critical liability issue is? I mean, I've read in the past about all these different exemptions that Major League Baseball is claiming. Is there an exemption, like the seasonal exemption, that's squarely at issue in this case that's going to be litigated? I'll I'll give you an attorney answer. It depends, which nobody ever wants to hear. Since we're operating both under the federal law, which is the Fair Labor Standards Act, and we're operating under state analogs, there are different exemptions in play. And so now the result of our appeal is we have three classes under state laws. And so two of those classes cover spring training and all the other training that's unpaid that goes on in Arizona and Florida. Those classes are under Arizona and Florida law. Now, the nice thing about Arizona law from our perspective is that it doesn't have any exemptions. So the question is, are they employees? And if they are, then they should be paid at least the minimum wage. The third class that we have is under California law, and it covers a league that's called the California League. And it's a minor league that is an advanced class A league, and it only takes place in California. And California doesn't, uh, doesn't adopt all of the federal law's exemptions either. And one of the exemptions the California law doesn't have is it doesn't have any seasonal exemption to it either. So, you know, California law, you know, we're going to be looking at, are they employees, which the face of the contract calls them employees multiple times. We feel like we're in pretty good shape there. And then, you know, they, they might raise another exemption or two also. Yeah, to give you an answer, and that's not a straight answer, I know, is it, it sort of depends by class. You know, we're all attorneys. We kind of understand the, the mechanisms of class action certification. You know, I, I think it's important. We do have people that listen to this that are just, you know, sports fans. They want to understand how baseball is being changed. You know, obviously, uh, and I guess I can provide some brief background. The class action certification was the only issue, my understanding, that was up and decided on the Supreme Court, Supreme Court's ruling. At this point, Garrett, is the class closed? Can any other people still join this class and join this lawsuit if, if they were a minor league player that, that felt aggrieved? Under Rule 23, and for the attorneys out there, the, the exact provision of Rule 23 that we're using is Rule 23B3. That provision of the federal rules is an opt-out provision. And so now that we have these classes certified under the state laws, 
all the players are automatically a part of those classes unless they choose to opt out during the notice period. So, you know, you guys, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have received notices about class actions in the mail at some point where they say, you know what, you had a faulty, I don't know, faulty lawnmower or something, and you're supposed to get a hundred bucks out of it or something. The same thing will happen here where all of the class members will get a notice and then there'll be a period of time where they can opt out if they so choose. If they don't opt out, then they're automatically a part of the class. They stay in the class. We represent them uh, all the way through the rest of the case then. The odd thing, though, that makes this case a little bit a little bit more nuanced than a normal class action is that the federal law is actually different. The federal law has the opposite mechanism, where it's an opt-in mechanism under the federal minimum wage law. And so several years ago, players did have to affirmatively opt into the case for the federal law. And we actually had about 2,300 players opt in, which I was really, really happy about. Because, you know, a lot of wage and a lot of minimum wage and overtime attorneys will tell you that those opt-in rates are usually pretty low because you're expecting a person who is sometimes still employed by the company to sign their name on something and to affirmatively do something. And so we were really happy that, you know, a number of current players, some players who are in the playoffs, by the way, or, or has signed their name to this thing several years ago. And, you know, we were, we were really happy about that. The only pushback I've seen on the news of this lawsuit, and I just, you know, this is a good platform for you to address it. I, I'm not one that necessarily believes in coincidences, unless it happens at a big level. But I think the the majors, you know, Major League Baseball's timing, again, this retraction of a handful of minor league teams, I don't think you can avoid the optics that this might be related. And I, I see it a lot in my replies. I see people saying, you know, maybe this lawsuit will lead to more money for players, but there will be less jobs for the players. What do you have to say on, I guess, this balancing act? Would you rather have a minor league which has more jobs but less pay or less jobs and, and more pay? Well, you know, I, would, I think that's a bit of a false choice. You know, I've heard people try to link the two. I will say this. I heard people in baseball talking about this idea even, you know, back the last years that I was playing. People had talked about shrinking the minor leagues for a long time. And those talks accelerated once you had more business-minded people running baseball. Because, you know, all of a sudden, uh, it was about max, not just about winning anymore, but about maximizing profits while you're winning and trying to see, you know, how little you can spend while still winning 100 games. You know, that's, that's the goal for any modern general manager at this point. And so, you know, with, with that in mind, I think this was all, the, the contraction was already in the works. And, you know, if anything, you know, blame COVID-19 instead of me for this. Because COVID-19 really did push things along too because it made the minor league owners powerless to combat it. It was just, it was a terrible, terrible year if you're a minor league owner. At the same time, you know, I, I also reject the notion that Major League Baseball has to cut teams, has to cut the number of players in order to pay the basic minimum wage. Like, we aren't talking about a huge sum of money here. Like, we're talking about the same laws that McDonald's and Walmart routinely comply with. A full-time minimum wage worker in this country makes $15,000 a year. That's, I mean, that's what we're talking about. I mean, surely Major League Baseball can find a way to pay their players just your basic minimum wage. And so, you know, the notion that they, they had to cut, cut teams and cut players the, uh, because of this, you know, I, I just don't buy it at all. Uh, I think it's an excuse, and I think it was already in the works, and they're just using it as an excuse to, to force it through. 
Yeah, Garrett, I've read in The Athletic or in Fangraph somewhere that if Major League Baseball paid the minimum wage to all affected minor league players, we're talking about a pot of money that's somewhere in the neighborhood of between five and a half and six million dollars annually, total, all in, divided by 30 some odd teams, you're looking at an amount of basically a couple hundred thousand dollars per minimum team. wage player. Yeah, so not even less than that. So why do you think Major League Baseball wants to sort of die on that hill when the amount of money at issue really isn't um, an industry changer? It's just another added cost, but it's one that seems manageable or in scale to the kind of money Major League Baseball is bringing in through all these different uh, verticals. And it's a relatively small expense. So why fight it? I, I think you have, you've already answered that question, and I, I don't know why. That's, that's one I've, I've sat around thinking about a lot for the past years, and I, I do not get it. I don't understand. I think you're exactly right. The, yeah. the sum of money that we're talking about is not huge in a $10 billion industry with, you know, exponential revenue growth. You know, surely they didn't, uh, yeah, sure, they didn't take in the revenue that they usually take in this year, obviously not. But with the TV contracts that they have kicking in, and they just signed a, a new one with for, for the playoffs, for instance, that you know, I believe is going to give them over $500 million a year to be divi- divided between the 30 teams. I mean, that is that is a lot of money. Take a small chunk of that and do the right thing and, you know, pay your minor league players enough where they can eat at Applebee's instead of McDonald's every day. Quick follow-up, then I'll give it back to Dan. I mean, you know, we, we all can sit here and wonder what baseball's logic was. But again, the act that Congress passed was by baseball, Save America's Pastime Act. So I don't think baseball is going to go bankrupt if they have to pay $6 million. I'm pretty sure that's just one additional contract that they have to eat. And we know that they've given out, teams have given out $20 million contracts that have, have not panned out. So maybe there's something bigger behind the scenes that we're not aware of. But again, you know, that's the name of the act. Save mm-hmm. America's passing. Save baseball to, to not pay minor leaders. So I think it's important to name that, that baseball chose for this. Yeah, that was a long week in my life when that passed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I got a call from a Washington Post reporter on a Sunday night about 830 at night. And it was not a sports reporter. It was their Capitol Hill reporter. And he says, um, what can you tell me about this Save America's Pastime Act? I'm like, what? I, think, I thought that thing was dead. Because, you know, when it was first introduced, it was first introduced, I think, way back in 2016. And it didn't go anywhere. It was just shelved, put aside, started collecting dust, never got a committee hearing. And then all of a sudden, two years later... You know, there's an omnibus spending bill that has to pass within like five days for the government to stay open. And all of a sudden, you know, that's that's what the Washington Post reporter was talking about, that they tacked this thing on to this omnibus spending bill and end up being on page 1,967 of this bill. And, you know, the way those omnibus spending bills are negotiated, it's just, you know, the it's just leadership is involved. So the rank and file didn't even know that this thing was in it. They didn't even know what they voted on. You know, I ran into Claire McCaskill, Senator Claire McCaskill, shortly after after it passed, and she voted no because she said she always voted no on omnibus bills like that because they load them up with all kinds of things. It is the exact opposite of how our democracy should function. But yeah, so she voted no, and, and she admitted that she didn't even realize it was in there. And most of the people that voted yes probably didn't. So this is something affecting the lives of thousands of people, and nobody even knew it was in there. 
Could we possibly be, be unsaving America's pastime if there's a change in power in the White House and the November elections basically lead to a, a President Biden uh, and a Democratic majority in the House and in the Senate? Is this something that could be revisited just simply by uh, reverting back to the way things were? Is that something that you're optimistic about achieving? Because you know, I would imagine you've thought about this, uh, yeah. given the political dynamic. Not to be cynical, but it's it's tough to get a bill passed. It's also get a, tough to get a bill unpassed. And, and I think Major League Baseball shows that it takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of clout. And, you know, funding those lobbyists isn't cheap. So, you know, I'm not an optimistic, but at the same time, I would love to see a movement come together to try to do just that. You know, one thing the, in the nonprofit that I co-founded, Advocates for Minor Leaguers, is going to be looking at is educating some of these congressmen about the ills of that act. Uh, there's a congressional tax task force right now that's been formed uh, that's you know investigating the contraction of minor league baseball. Well, at the same time, they also need to be investigating the Save America's Pastime Act. They can't ignore that because that's that's something that was their making. Now I want to close, or at least my last question is going to focus more on law firm economics and the delicate balancing act that's involved in assessing the settlement value of the case versus the risk of going trial. You've been at this in the trenches for the last six years. I imagine your law firm has devoted millions of dollars of uh, soft attorney time as well as hard costs that can only be recovered if you win, settle, or have some type of you know common fund. Are you taking this case to a trial? Is that is, is there the principle involved of trying to upend the major league system of basically indentured servitude for minor leaguers, or is there a deal to be had? And how do you how do you juggle, or or um, you know just ha, how do you address those two competing you know tensions? Given the investment that your firm has made, it is a it is a business. You're not, you know, you're not here, you know, just devoting this as a not-for-profit. Your firm is a for-profit law firm. At what point do you go for the best deal you can? Or is this something that you want to take to trial because of the way it could upend and, and potentially change the way minor leaguers are paid forever? You're right. Our firm, Core Antillery, has invested a lot of resources in this case. But, you know, I guess the way I would describe it is there are certain cases that you do to fund the firm. And then sometimes there's cases that you do because it's the right thing to do. And this case falls in that latter category. And so, you know, me as, as a former player, I want to make sure that we do everything we can to do the right thing and get this done right for players. And so if that means that we need to take it to trial and we need to get a verdict, then that's what we'll do. If, if it means that there is some compromise that makes sense and that brings forth meaningful change, you know, that's, that's something we can take a look at also. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, whatever happens, it's going to be the best thing for the players. You know, that's our obligation. And that, that's what we're going to do. Yeah, so, if only you had represented uh, retired NFL players in their battle with the legal ah, repercussions, man. Those attorneys, oh, what a mess. <laughs> those attorneys bailed. Oh, uh, I'm glad I'm not in that offer. one. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's a disgrace. Yeah, you're to be commended for your uh, taking on Major League Baseball over more than a half a decade on on this issue with much, much more to come. And we look forward following this case, you know, closely and having you back on, hopefully lighting a victory cigar, because it is as much as I'm a fan of baseball, you can't accept the notion that you're rooting for your favorite teams in the playoffs but they're owned by, you know, billionaires while the up and coming players who become the player, you know, the, the, the few that make it shouldn't overshadow the many, many more who never make it that are paid below, way below a minimum wage, way below the poverty level. And it really does strike at the core of fairness and justice for our American workers. So I wish you a lot of success in the case and congratulate you for taking it this far. You're almost there. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Garrett, thanks for coming on. We hope to have you on again uh, as this case progresses. Yeah, it's my pleasure, and we'll keep working on it. So that was Garrett Brocious. Again, Garrett is the lead plaintiff in this minor league players lawsuit. So much to look out for in the next couple months. I believe the case is going to be back on track in early 2021. Dan, before we put this in the books, what are your final thoughts on on this lawsuit and, and Garrett Brocious himself? Well, I think Garrett was one of the best guests we've ever had. He might have even been our best guest. And it's really good to get back into the, you know, the fundamentals of of sports law because we got into this to really highlight specific cases. And of all the cases that we've covered, I think this might be the most important sports law controversy, given the potential impact it could have throughout the uh, baseball industry and the hundreds, if not thousands of minor league players that are going to be affected by this. This goes really to, you know, a livable, fair wage, you know, for, for thousands of individuals who right now earn less than $8,000 a year and even considerably less than that. So I'm proud to be able to deliver an episode like this with a guest like Garrett. And I think we're getting close to the day where this case can settle or go to trial and overcoming class certification and getting by that that threshold and obstacle. I think the momentum is on Garrett's side. And at worst, this case will have a very strong settlement value. However, there is the issue of summary judgment and he's got to make a decision at what point and at what number is this case worth settling because the summary judgment uh, obstacle looms down the road and he could come away with no recovery. But I think he's very well positioned to get a historic settlement out of Major League Baseball. And I would expect this case to settle at, at, a, at a figure that will essentially reform and, and, and uh, re- revise the way that minor league players are compensated. Because I think Major League Baseball wants to do it. They really do. And the amount of money that's in play here every year, you'd be it is shockingly low compared to the amount of money that the leagues make and relative to other types of expenses. So I think there's a real settlement possibility here. And I hope, I hope both sides are able to find that middle ground. Dan, so I think we can put that in the books. So just as a, as a final note, Garrett had mentioned a couple of times his nonprofit to the extent that you wanted to get involved, you feel passionate about the issue. Just drop Dan or I a note. We'll get you in touch to the appropriate personnel. And quick shout out to our conduct detrimental, uh, we'll say research extraordinaire, social media extraordinaire, A. Mike Lawson for taking the bar, but Taryn Charmer for helping uh, prepare us for this episode. Taryn uh, used to work in uh, baseball ops for Diamondbacks and the Giants. So uh, very uh, passionate about these issues. So um, that'll put us in the books. As always, Dan Wallach is at Wallach Legal on Twitter. 
and Instagram, myself, Dan Lust at Sports Law Lust, Conduct Detrimental at Con Detrimental. We will see you next week. As always, any questions, that would be great. And if you could leave us a review, that would also be great. So uh, we will see you next week, as always, on another episode. Dan, you do it. Let me hear it. Let's tee up Brass Bonanza. See everybody next week. <laughs>